I'm Chris Reback. This is The 180, our podcast that explores how to transform 21st century education, how to turn it around using 21st century science. In our previous podcast, we heard from Turned Around for Children about how their well-being index was designed and is meant to work. Today, we get to hear the details from the field about how it works in action. PS340 is a K-5 school in the Bronx, New York. It's one of those incredible schools that goes well beyond reading, writing, and arithmetic to help students learn and grow. PS340's mission, stated clearly on its website, is to educate the whole child. To do that, the school offers an extraordinary range of programs not only to their students, but also to their families. This year, PS340 is working with Turnaround for Children on a new way to learn about and help their students. They're using the Well-Being Index. This series of questions helps children describe how they're feeling. By regularly taking these measurements over months, teachers can learn not only what their students might be facing on the inside, but also what they might do to help. So how's it going? To find out, we talked with the school's principal, Alexi Nichols, and fifth grade teacher, Diana DeCorda. As you'll hear, PS340 is creating something that all schools and parents may want to learn from. One note before we begin, an ask from me to you. If you like our 180 conversations, I'd appreciate if you take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. It makes a big difference in helping people find the podcast. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Alexi Nichols and Diana DeCorda. Alexi, Diana, thank you so much for joining. I really appreciate your time. Yes, thank you for having us. Glad to be here, Chris. So, Alexi, let's start with you. Um, tell me about your school. Tell me about uh, PS340. And tell me about the families uh, and the community that you work with and, and that you serve. Your website offers elements that go far beyond reading, writing, and arithmetic, Alexi. You've got a cash assistance program. Um, you've got a location to click here for free or reduced internet. You um, promote breakfast, lunch, and dinner for students and families, not just the students, including grab-and-go meals. I mean, you make it you know, highly convenient to people's real lives. You're a full partner in your students' and their families' lives, aren't you? Well, we, we kind of like to say at 340 that it's a big family atmosphere and that we work together and we play together. Uh, we really feel that the partnership uh, between home and school is critical to the success of everyone, all of our students. To us, it's about uh, relationships. It's about building trusting relationships. And, you know, quite frankly, we realize that, you know, a lot of us maybe didn't have the best experiences going to school. And some of our students' families are a little bit hesitant at first to to want to join in and come into the building. So it's really our job and our mission to make them feel part of the fabric of our school. And that means, uh, way, yes, yes, extending beyond reading, writing, arithmetic. It, it means making home visits. We are really big on going to homes and meeting with families. Describe the families for me. Who, what, what is your community like? We have about 85% of our uh, community is um, Latino, Spanish-speaking. Uh, we have about 10% um, African-American uh, families and students, and we have about 5% um, that are, you know, um, European, mostly Eastern European, Albanian, 
Um, and we have a huge um, population that's learning a second language or a third language. Um, we, we have 30% of our students are in temporary housing uh, and about 30% of our students have individual education plans where they get particular special needs services. Uh, that's about the demographics um, in our community. We're in the Kingsbridge Heights section of the Bronx. Diana, what would your characterization of your students and of their families be? This is my 10th year now with the school, and this is just a community that there's nothing that I couldn't say to someone or there's no one that I couldn't rely on. I'd say the students are hardworking individuals. Um, they really want to make their families proud. The families are are pretty much right beside them to help them along the way. Um, it's very easy for me to just pick up the phone and to text or to contact a parent. And, and I know that whatever I'm asking them to help do with their child, that they'll be right there to, to really um, help them along the way. So I would say it's a, it's a really loving community and making that bridge between school and home, like what Alexi had just said, that a lot of parents are a little hesitant at first. Why, why are they hesitant, do you think? It might just be their own experiences where school was so rigid and it's just come in, learn the lesson, whether you get it or not, and sink or swim. And, you know, if you're sinking, no one's helping you. But if you're sinking with us, we're giving you a life vest, we're throwing you, we're going in to, to help you get up to the surface. So I really think that our school is differentiating. We're, we're helping all types of learners and parents need to know that. Can I just add one thing to that? What Diana said was Please. that um, about maybe what what's behind some of the hesitancy. We do have many undocumented parents. And so a lot of times they are not comfortable at first until they knew that this was a trusting place and that we were a community that would support them, take care of them. They, they at first did have some hesitancy, but that did change with time and with building those relationships. An environment where you have students who may be struggling with issues, with documentation issues, family stress, parental stress, when you have students who are dealing with perhaps um, housing insecurities, with um, food insecurity, what does that do for children's mindset, sensibility, internal readiness? Great question. It actually, it does a lot. One of the things that um, as a school we really believe in and we've worked towards is a few things, but one is growth mindset and growth mindset versus fixed mindset is like helping kids to know that there's going to be frustrations. We have challenges. That's all real. That's all that we, we experience, but we can together support and give you processes and structures and supports to, to persevere and be resilient. However, it's not just about growth mindset. Yes. I, you know, I'm not there yet. I can persevere and do this. Yeah. That's great to say, but when you have daily trauma and basic needs aren't being met, we have other layers of, of, of support. So one of the things that, that we have talked about as a school is the impact of trauma on the brain and what that does to students' learning experiences and social-emotional needs. And what we have really been focusing on is just understanding how that can impact learning, how trauma can impact learning, and that it's truly um, a biological... The trauma impacts both your body, your mind, and your ability 
to comprehend. And so when you have a brilliant child who is, is, is faced with homelessness and um, maybe abuse or challenges in their life, uh, their, their prefrontal cortex just, you know, it, it breaks down and there's this excess of stress and anxiety that really kind of can incapacitate students and families. And so we've been working with actually a couple of different organizations really around helping us to use some tools to help to assess where the needs are and um, figure out ways that we can uh, both build on the assets that, that our students have internally and work on needs and next steps. Diana, what Alexia was talking about, uh, about the role of trauma and what that can do physically to the brain and what it can do to the cortex and, and what it can do to um, a child's readiness. How does that manifest itself in the classroom? Does that show up to you as a teacher when, when you're trying to teach? Absolutely. I mean, like Alexi was just saying, you could have a student who scores who is just so intelligent that if they go through a week or they walk in the door or they're on Zoom, you know, and you could see in their face or in their gestures that something's off. I mean, I think that the most important thing that we try to tell our kids is that they have a voice. Just because you're only in fifth grade doesn't mean that you don't have issues or you don't have ways that you can solve things. I know a year or two ago, there was a, a boy whose father was taken from by ICE. And a week before that, he we made speeches and his speech was about immigration. And it just brought me to tears that this is what he's talking about. And fast forward a week later and his father was taken. So, you know, he felt, I could see that he was distraught and and I just said to him, you know, you have to you have to have hope and you have to think about what your voice says. And he was, you know, completely torn. But, you know, we, I was just trying to help him to realize that, hey, there is something that we can do and we're here to help. How do you as a teacher prepare for, it sounds like almost literally anything? You have to be prepared to teach math, to teach the social studies, the science lesson, but you also, I guess, have to be prepared to help educate and guide when a child's parent gets uh, deported. How do you prepare for all that as a teacher? I, I would just say you have to be very flexible and understanding, and you can't just brush things off and say, no, 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 we have to get to this math lesson. The math lesson can wait. The reading lesson can hold off or maybe today, you know, we can't read this book we're supposed to read. You know what? There's another read aloud that I think we could really connect to as a community that I think we all need to do this instead. So there's the curriculum that teachers need to get through, but there's also life and there's also the right moves as a human being that have to be made in order to have kids want to open up to you. Because if you just keep going and keep pushing on with the lesson, what child is going to open up and let you know how they're feeling? What Diana was talking about is that that flexibility and responsiveness. I really, I really feel like our school and, and our and my amazing teachers are really becoming so expert at doing exactly what Diana just said. Is like, wait a minute, take a pause. I am trying to teach a ratios lesson, and Jose is telling me that his dad was just deported. We we need to take a pause, and we need to take a moment, and we need to support him. And it's not to say that we don't need to teach that math lesson because we do, but we may need to take a pause. We need, need to bring something in. We may need to bring our support team and our social worker and counselor 
uh, to the table um, to do follow-up and, and to make sure that we reach out to the family and that we, that we provide all those additional supports that we believe we need to provide. So you both are describing a steady state, let's call it a PS340 status quo, that is filled with a range of challenges. So what's been the effect of the pandemic on top of all of that? First of all, we're no longer just teaching kids. We're teaching families, aunts and uncles and titis and abuelas. And um, we are bringing everyone into the fold because that's what it takes, right? Is that it's not just us in the classroom together now. It's like we're, 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 we're all in this. And especially with all of the technical challenges, it becomes hard because oftentimes we're in the middle of a lesson and you lose three kids because the internet went out or uh, something like that. And so you're trying to do catch up and you're trying to differentiate and, you know, teachers are doing breakout rooms to differentiate based on needs and assessments. And But what I think has been the hardest is not being able to be in the hallways and just touch base. And so that space that's normally there is not there. And everything that we do, it takes 10 times longer, right, <laughs> Diana? And you, you feel like you're, you're losing kids or you're losing people. Are you still there with me? Are you still there with me? And you it's just like want to like, reach out and grab. Are you there, Jonathan? <laughs> yes. So it's just a feeling um, like we're, we're not able to, to fully teach the whole child in the way that we normally can. It sounds like it. It sounds like uh, there surely are ways in which it forces, uh, this is the opportunity side. So within the context of everything that we are talking about, and, and Alexi, let's start with you. Why do you elect to use the well-being index? You know, something that we're really good at is assessing our students academically and how they make progress on their math or their ELA or their science or social studies. We're really good at looking at data and saying, oh, look at this. So what's that telling us? And now what do we need to do about it? And what's the plan? But we were not so great uh, at assessing the social emotional wellness of our community, of our students. And um, we never had really a tool to um, capture that data. Um, and I was very excited uh, when uh, Turnaround for Children kind of approached us and, and said, hey, hey, 340, would you like to pilot this, you know, well-being index? And I'm like, what is that? And, and they said, you know, well, it, it's basically they shared us uh, with us that it's a tool with some really um, powerful questions around feelings and functioning skills that our students either have or don't have. And um we have given it, I think, three or four times, Diana, at this point, um, to our students, four, four times. Um, and wow, I think Diana will be able to even speak deeper to some of the information we've learned from this. So I guess the answer is we said yay because we needed this. This was the next phase of our work to really be able to, especially now during the pandemic when we're so cut off, it was a safe tool to use or kids could fill out this five-question survey about how are they doing and how are they holding up. Diana, you were told you've got this well-being index. Were you trained on it? Take me through the entire process from when it was introduced to you to how you are engaging with your students on it. So I actually was just brought on to this team to, to pilot it this year. So I was able to be given all the information and the, the links to watch. So 
when I had first um, looked at it, looked at how the students are going to be um, rating themselves, I saw that it was on a one to five scale. So it was none of the time, rarely, sometimes, often, and all of the time. And I just knew as a teacher that, you know, just from the get-go, that students will, and I know students might not really be able to differentiate what is rarely, what is often. So I just kind of took it upon myself to do a couple of trials, like how often uh, I brush my teeth. Thank goodness, most of them said all the time. Or I, you know, I go on vacation. Well, we don't really go on vacation anymore, so that would be a rarely or none of the time. So I wanted to make sure before we jumped into this that they understood what these different points really meant. Establish the scale. Yes, exactly. And I, you know, I had explained to the students, this is, we're doing this so that we could get to know you in a different sense. We want to feel, we want to be able to get to know you, get to know how you're feeling and also how you're functioning. So those are the two aspects. And every time we do it, I always remind them this is the same, the same questions, same six questions. So it's more about the data and how they're reacting to it throughout this school year, throughout this pandemic. I know for a fact we purposely did it like right before the holiday break, right after the holiday break to see really what the data is is showing and how they're feeling. How have they reacted to the process and what are you learning about your students that was not previously evident to you perhaps? So now I just think it's second nature. Twice a month, we call it Turnaround Tuesday and I give them the link, they know to sign in and you know now they're able to, they're like, oh yeah, it's Turnaround Tuesday, let's do this. So what I was noticing based on the data is that they take pretty much the feelings aspect, like those three questions of feelings, and it shows it across the four times that I administered it. And then it does the same thing for the functioning. So it's, I really am a visual learner and I like to see the bar graphs. So what the data had told was that the kids are feeling cared for. So they were rating that on like a four. So five is the most, 4.5, 4.4. So that was really nice to see that even though most of these kids are staying home, I think they are realizing why their parents are choosing for them to stay home, that they're not making this decision so that they're bored. They're making it so that they're safe. So that was that was the highest rated one out of all the six components. And no, there really is no surprise, but the one that they scaled the least on is, are they getting enough sleep? And I teach fifth graders and everybody's playing video games and everyone's staying up late and um, they're not getting enough sleep. And who wakes up late and comes onto the Zoom, you know? So we're trying to, with that data that we've gotten, we're really trying to tell them like, hey, you really need to put the phone down, put the iPad down at night and just fall asleep. Um, Because I know that the fact that they have these devices now is fantastic, but I hope that they're not getting almost like addicted to them where they have to be on them constantly. In your previous 10 years of teaching, did you talk to students about the importance of sleep? And did you have the, the, the hard data on how much or how little they were sleeping? Is that, was that part of your repertoire? Well, I mean, we definitely didn't have the hard data because it was either they showed up to school or they didn't. Um, that now, was the metric. Right. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. So now, now they, they might show up to our Zoom at like 10 a.m. or, you know, and then if that's happening on a, on a consistent basis, we're going to talk to their parents. We're going to say, hey, you need to make sure that they, they, they get to sleep. I've been teaching fifth grade for all my 10 years and it's always video games and the parents will tell me during parent teacher conferences, oh, you know, they stay up late. But this year it's way more evident with the well-being index 
that that and and also being home all the time because everybody's getting bored and some of our our students have have not left the house since March they have not and that's their parents decision and you know that's that's totally fine but we definitely need to make sure that we're checking in and helping the parents in that aspect of make sure you take the device away and and get a good night's sleep Alexis, fill me in on the two F's, feeling and functioning. The amount of time on screen has quadrupled and the lack of sleep has quadrupled. And the other thing that is pretty alarming in terms of thinking about well-being, I always say healthy body, healthy mind. And right now we're not so healthy physically because we're not moving. And just the functionality of the, the, the sheer fact that we're, that we're sitting in front of a computer screen, teachers, us as, as well, and kids, we're not moving. We're not getting the exercise. We're not getting those endorphins that we know is so important for learning. It, it's mind-body, right? So there's a huge, in terms of functioning skills that, you know, in this, in this index, we have a question that says, I've been getting enough sleep. That's a functioning question. I've been feeling, uh, oh, I've been eating healthy and good foods, right? So this idea of not eating well, not having enough, um, so I'm not feeling, that's a feeling, I'm not feeling well, and therefore I can't function well in my school. So I've been, this question is really powerful to me that kids answer on, the, on this index. It's, I've been interested in my daily activities. That one, uh, we have seen, unfortunately, to prove we've got a lot of ones and a lot of twos across the board. So as the feelings I'm feeling cared for is high, the functioning is still quite low in the sense that it's not transferring because I think it, that we're unbalanced, right? So the, the mind-body is not in balance and therefore um, we're not our best selves. We're not functioning in, in, in our, our best capacity. Connect, if you would, for me. Teachers have a set of social and emotional learning tools in their repertoire. And a challenge often can be which tool at which time with which student in which format. Connect the well-being index, if you would, please, and the insights that you might gain from that to what that does to help teachers understand what social and emotional learning tools they can employ at a particular time? Great question. I think that, yes, uh, one of the things, I mean, we've been doing social emotional learning work and, and, and thinking about the five competencies, you know, self-awareness, self-regulation, all, all, all those things. And we've been using tools, the mood meter, to understand first, like, what are we feeling and name it. Those are tools that we've used, the, the, the mood meter, um, the meta moment when, when we're feeling stressed and we need to take a moment to cool down, to think about it. I think that you having this repertoire of tools and now having the data to really break down where the needs are, we now know which tool to use. For example, if I'm thinking about some of the feelings data that I get from the well-being index. And I'm like, well, they're just feeling like not cared for, or they're feeling frustrated and they're feeling anxious. We can go to those, the mood meter. We can go to the meta moment tools, which helps us to teach our kids strategies 
for regulating that. I call it, well, you, have to, you have to name it to tame it. So once we know the emotion, we have some tools that help us regulate that so that we can function better. So I do feel like, and thank you for asking that question, because uh, one of the next steps that we knew that we needed was a way to glean the specific data so that we knew exactly which tool to go to in our bag of tricks. Like what strategy specifically could we use to address that? If they're feeling like they're really not part of the community, remind them about the class charter. Remind them about the norms we talked about as a community of learners and how we need to be together. How do we need to support each other? Maybe it requires our morning meeting where we have a listening circle and we give affirmations to people to pump each other up. So there are all these structures and tools that we already use. And now with the well-being index, we can kind of isolate those and decide which tool is going to support that, that need. Diana, how do you see the uh, well-being index connecting to the tools in your repertoire? I mean, I would just have to second what uh, Alexi had just said, that this idea of the feelings portion of this, that that's definitely the growth mindset, the mood meter. So those are things that we could easily use to help pinpoint exactly how they're feeling. And then when it comes to the functioning, that's almost, I'm thinking of this other tool that we use, brain power, that do you need to get up and move? Do you need to get your mind awake? These are just some of the things that we've have been using, or we've just started to pilot a, a year or two ago that it's all just kind of connecting. And just as a teacher, you just need to know exactly which of your arsenal of tools to use at what time. So two questions for you. One is, what does this have to do with getting good grades on and learning math skills and learning how to read and hitting the thresholds? And then two, what are some specific tactics that based on what you are learning and based on the insights that your teachers are able to employ in their teaching in helping the kids learn? Before, I used to be reading, writing, writing math, arithmetic, and that's all that matters, right? Well, we, we know that if you're teaching uh, the whole child, then you have to think about the whole child. And if we are experiencing these traumas, if we are not able to get the exercise that we need, then our brain physically is not operating at full capacity. So there's a huge connection. And, and I think Diana knows, I say this all the time, you cannot separate academics from social emotional. Social emotional and academics are intertwined and have to be woven throughout the day. And that leads kind of into the next piece that you asked was what kind of, what are we doing to mitigate this, right? Like, what are we doing to um, help with this? What does it empower you to do? Yes. So one of the things that um, the teachers have started to do is, um, and we've actually been doing a lot of, is we call brain power wellness and uh, brain breaks as well as exercise breaks. So I was actually been reading this book about what does it look like in Finland, education system in Finland. And after every 45 minutes, there's 10 minutes of movement because mm. the research says literally, if you get your endorphins going, you get those more, you get those synapses firing again. Guess what? The brain is now ready. Minds on. Minds are on for learning. And what happens is 
the minds get shut off because they have just been sitting there dead in the, in the same spot and thinking about all of the woes of life and whatever else is, is affecting them. So I would say that's the biggest thing is that this wellness index and the data we're getting from it is just confirming for us kind of what we knew, but, but it's giving us more specifics and helping teachers to really embed some of these practices throughout the day in their instruction. Diana, does that ring true to you? Yes, I would definitely say so. Uh, we're using the brain power techniques or the little brain breaks almost every day, whether we have to get up. It's almost like Simon says, but it's brain power says, and or it's like ways of concentrating with making two shapes. We're your left hand making a square and the right hand making a triangle. And the kids are just, you know, laughing and having fun. And, and it's so difficult, but it's just a great way to like get up and not even get up. You could still sit down and try and practice these brain breaks, but... We definitely have way more, I guess you could almost say tricks up our sleeves with this idea of movement, with this idea of like, we need you, we need to make sure that you're paying attention. So we're doing things on our slides or with our voices or with our bodies, just to make sure that the kids are there because otherwise they, they think that we're a TV show. You know, this is the, this is the Miss Decorda show. And I keep telling them, you have to wake up, you know, this is a two way street here. We need to make sure that you're not just listening to me, you're, that you're paying attention. Yeah. And like, it's like, you know, with math or something, I've hear like stand up if it's a prime number, like crouch down if it's a, you know, getting movement, embedding movement into lessons and, and thinking about, thinking about our time more strategically, right? Like shortening things up and providing more opportunity for collaboration. Like the, even the breakout rooms and kids are in charge and, 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 um, they're, they're kind of leading some of the, or this is where we're moving towards and hoping for <laughs> in charge of uh, some of those conversations, not just the teachers. So like moving, trying, it's so hard, right? In this time, like, but we're really trying to think about ways to, like Dana said, empower students to have a voice, to have choice. And when they feel like they have voice, they have choice, the engagement increases. When they feel like they have an opportunity to like to move and get up or be silly. Diana's great about that. She does lots of fun, silly things. Um, and the the engagement just, just like it's like poof, all of a sudden the cameras go on. Oh boy. The cameras go off, you know we're losing them. But once those cameras go back on and you say, hey, and you throw them for a loop by asking a crazy question or say it's brain power time, the cameras go on. It's funny to me in listening to you, I can imagine that Diana's teaching, Miss Decorda's classroom, has transitioned from Tommy, stop standing up and acting silly to Tommy, please stand up and act silly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yes, yes, uh, uh, exactly. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's, we do whatever we got to do to support, to build engagement, to get the minds on. Have any of the insights surprised you? Yes, actually. Uh, when we first looked at the data, I was actually surprised that the feeling score. So at the end, I guess we failed to mention that they do tally and give you an overall feeling score and functioning score and total well-being. And when they, when you break it down to see, and they do this individually and trend data looking across the classes. And what's interesting is the feelings scores seem to be higher than the functioning scores. And there does seem to be a lot of students who feel like they have a trusted adult in their life, whether it's someone at school or someone at home. Yet it doesn't seem to be transferring over to the functioning. I would have thought that if you have a caring adult who's there, who's helping, that the functioning level would be higher. Yet that's not necessarily what we're seeing so far in the data, which is surprising to me. 
I mean, it's also difficult because these parents who might be essential workers have to go to work while a child is home with their older sibling. And, you know, guess what? They might not be eating as healthy as they used to. Their, their older brother or sister saying, hey, here's a bag of chips. That's your lunch, you know, or they're not getting out. They say, hey, you can't leave the house, you know, stay here. So you can't be a, get up and be active or walk around the neighborhood. And at that point, by the parent, time their parents come home, they're exhausted and maybe they're not checking up on their child that they're still up on the iPad watching, you know, TikTok or something. So it really is just this whole, it's such a different world and even just being at home and, and who's at home and when they're at home, it's just really changed the dynamics of, of families. I'm curious what you might tell your peers in other schools or other districts Diana, what would you communicate to other fifth grade teachers, let's say, around, one, what you've learned from the Wellbeing Index, and two, what the role of something like this tool could play in each person's ability to be a better teacher? I would have to say that just because a student is smiling on camera or in front of you doesn't necessarily mean that they're, that on the inside, that they're really feeling cared for or that they feel like they're functioning to the best of their ability. And that could also go for the student who doesn't have their camera on. You know, you, we can't see what they, we can't see how they're reacting to things. And that's the hardest part. You know, we beg and beg, please turn your camera on. And there's only so much we can do. So it is nice though, to see through this well-being index that the students that maybe I haven't seen their face in quite some time, hey, they do feel like they're cared for. They are functioning to the best of their ability or they feel like they're functioning so it's so hard because you could just, in person, you could just feel a student's energy. You could just see, hey, they, they need some help. Like I, I need to give them some extra, extra TLC today. It's hard to do that over the computer. So that would be what I would say to my fellow peers. And Alexei, what would you say to uh, other principals? You know, I, I think I would just say slow down and pause a little bit and take time to think about the whole child and what I'm saying now is the whole family and this tool, the well-being index, there's kind of a, a behind the curtain. It's helping us to like peel the curtain back a little bit because we can't necessarily, like Diana said, have those moments of real face-to-face -face time like we did in person for those who are remote. And even the blended groups that come in some days and are home other days, we feel like gosh, we can, we got to get everything in on the in-person days because gosh knows if we're going to get them back um, on the online days. So I guess I would say to other principals is that it's such a valuable way to like qualify or quantify, you know, wellness and social emotional um, well-being. And we were really struggling with how to get this kind of data. And you know, to be honest with you, um, it takes a lot of time <laughs> to create a tool like this and to have the back end work be done and help with this through Turnaround for Children's data department. It's something that I think every principal who has the same mindset um, as we do really would benefit from, from implementing it, especially now when we don't know what's behind the curtain as much and it allows kids that safe space to just answer these questions. They're not unmuting and saying them out loud. They're simply answering them and then we're getting the information. So I do feel, and I'd be curious just to hear from Diana, I do feel that 
now that they understand it more, that the data is becoming more and more accurate and that it's going to help us as we move forward to glean some trends that will help us to provide the supports and structures moving forward that will help to optimize you know, student learning and health and wellness overall. Is that what you're finding, Diana? Yeah, I would say so. I'm actually just glancing one more time at the data and it seems like that pretty much in every category, it's increasing. So it is getting better. So I don't know. I would hope that the students realize that we're doing this so that we can help you so that if we see a trend, we're going to reach out to you. We're going to make sure that our guidance counselor and a teacher uh, have lunch with you so that you can we can kind of crack your this outer core to say, hey, what, what's going on? We're here to help you. So I, you know, I, I do. I use the analogy of the onion. We just keep peeling away the layers to get to the core issues. And um, this is another really helpful tool to do that. So to close out the conversation, as you are getting to the core, getting closer to the core of the kids um, and their families, and Alexia, I can start with you. Is there something that you have learned? Is there something perhaps in particular that as you've gotten closer to the core that you admire about the kids, about your kids and your community? Yeah, I I admire a lot. Uh, I I think that the first thing that comes to mind is just, I know it's a word that we throw around a lot, but resilience and like grit and stick-to-itness because like It's incredible when you actually sit down and have conversations with families. And I think one thing that I would like to say is when this pandemic started, it's actually allowed us to get closer to some families that never came into the building because we kind of had them trapped. Like they were in the, you know, in the apartment and on the screen. And we were like, hey, Joey, get your mom. (laughs) Sometimes we could never get Joey's mom into the building. But when we were like, hey, He's doing a great job. We just want to connect with you. How else can we help him better? And starting from that positive place, I can't tell you how the involvement of parents, I almost want to say has increased because of the need to support this new kind of learning. And so I would like to give props (laughs) to all of the, the working families who are just trying to like hold everything together. And maybe five balls are in the air, and one drops, but you know what? They pick it up and keep on going. So so I guess I would say that I, I just am every day astounded by how many parents are really trying to work in partnership with us and have felt our care, our ethic of care come across even through the screen and therefore have been able to share with us some really, some beautiful stories and some real hardships and th- by creating that sense of community and relationship building, it helps to mitigate some of the other stresses that are there because we know then how we can, we can support. And so I, I just am grateful for our families and the parents that are going out there working a couple jobs and still coming back and have time to, to, to check in with us and, and their kids. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, Diana, yeah, how about you? So, I mean, I would definitely say that I really admire the the perseverance that our students have, that our families have. I mean, this has not been an easy transition. We've sort of started it back in March. But, I mean, looking back now, what we taught in March is just completely different with what we're doing now and Mm. just how we go about these lessons online. And March, everybody was just like, oh, my gosh, what do we do? How are we 
we're just all trying to survive. And now we've had so much time to really better our craft. And the students have really learned by now. It's taken a while, but we've learned together what we're expecting of them and learning the new norms of what is online learning supposed to be like and what they can expect. So I would just say to the students, to the families, patience and perseverance is really what I'm glad that we've all done this together. Yeah. I mean, I just, I'm sorry. One last thing. I was just thinking about our character assembly, our spirit Fridays we had this morning and each month we have like a theme or a value or a concept. And, you know, this month in black history month was about fair and just and uh, celebrating our identities of who we are. And wow, I was just so blown away by the evolution of our students and in, in, in their sense of self. And I, I really attribute that to the work that we're doing here, the social emotional as well as the academic and how those those are equally weighted in, in that's that's our vision is to equally maybe we're not quite there yet, but that's the the vision is that we weigh them equally because they are. Um, if you think about the world and what's needed and the skill set that our kids need now in the 21st century, that's it. So I was just blown away by their voice. And we, we we're trying to provide more and more platforms for them, but it's they're telling their stories, telling their experiences. And today was just, it just it's touched my heart to see our third, fourth and fifth graders just sharing out about why they're special and who they are. So hopefully we'll, we're going to keep on this journey and it's going to get better and you know, but it's, it's, sometimes it's a rough road. We fall down, we, we pull each other back up. I'm certain that you do. I'm certain that's how uh, PS340 works. And I'm certain as well that that's how your students and importantly, their families feel. I'm certain that that's what they get every day. Alexi, Diana, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you, more importantly, of course, for what you do for uh, your kids and their families and that community uh, every day. Thank yes, you. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, my Chris. pleasure. That was my conversation with Alexi Nichols and Diana de My thanks to Alexi and Diana for joining and you for listening. To learn more about how to transform 21st century education using 21st century science, go to turnaroundusa.org. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon. <laughs>